you Yeah, yo There whenever it matters and even more when you feel like it doesn't Protect you so you never feel like you wasn't Know I'm right alongside you, here by that I'm behind you But always got you, end the discussion, nothing means more First one to offer his shoulders for what you preach for Thought I saw the eyes of the world until I seen yours And know that I ain't see a better view yet I'm with whatever, so don't ever you fret Know that you covered, not a hurdle or a heartbreak To change what a part take Cause none of them won't ever get comfortable in your walkway My job is to aware you, fully loaded Prepare you for all of the above that I'm never letting get near you. But still, I know, give you every advantage I found. Couldn't find a better fit for them along with my crown. And since the baton was passed, hopping down, cause feeling's not an option and dad is not a noun, not at all. Welcome to another episode of Dad Is Not A Now. My name is Ishmael, changing the narrative for men of color and fatherhood, as well as changing the narrative on the things I care about. And on today's episode of Dad Is Not A Now, with MLK Day coming around the corner, I thought it was important for us to have this conversation of the whitewashing of MLK. Because I see MLK more of a brand. Um, You see him everywhere. You see him in commercials. I remember as a little kid seeing his the commercial McDonald's did for him. And as an adult, I look at it now, it's like McDonald's ideology and I'm okay doesn't go hand in hand. I don't think uh, Dr. King would have support the the strategy of, of McDonald's, but I keep going on. But I think it's important that we have this conversation because since uh the first day of i'm okay holiday you see a lot of people using his quotes for their own agenda to put out their own ideology and so on this episode of dad is not enough first of all i want to thank second thought channel for letting me utilize their content for this episode because i think it's important that we have this conversation of whitewashing uh black historical figures uh whether is to change because at the end of the day it's about to change the narrative um and make it uh consumable for people who feels uncomfortable of learning the 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 real history of our historical figures so again i hope you guys enjoy share like and all that good things on top of that i want to thank everyone for who support this podcast because i'm on my way to 200 episodes that's right 200 episodes I started this in the middle of the pandemic, and now I'm on my way to 200. So again, I thank you guys from the bottom of my heart who listened, who shares, who just just thank you so much, and I appreciate you guys. So again, I hope you guys enjoy it, have this conversation, um, especially on MLK Day. You know, it's like it's you know instead of of just uh, just instead of just putting a quote on Twitter or putting is a, a video of on, on on social media or whatever just do something do something positive um do something productive do something in the community do some volatile work um if you see a homeless veteran um take them out to eat do something positive in the community on his day instead of just tweeting something all right guys i love you i hope you guys enjoy it peace
This episode and others like it are made possible by the generous support of my patrons on Patreon. We recently did a major overhaul of our patrons-only Discord server. So if you'd like to join our growing community and get early access to every video, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com secondthought. What's up, Thought Squad? Second thoughties? Members members of the sec community? I don't know. Forget it. Hello, viewer. Thanks for tuning in to a very special episode of the Second Thought broadcast. This week, we're looking at radical figures and how they get whitewashed. Again. Wait, did we did we do this already? Oh, we did. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, but but actually, you'll you'll find this very interesting. Um, uh, this time this time we're doing it. Uh, we're we're gonna we're. We're doing, it's actually very different, because this time, it's going to be even more materialisty or something. Okay, jokes aside, here's the truth. It's Black History Month, the shortest month of the year. The only month corporations acknowledge that black people exist. The month the FBI tweets nice things about MLK, despite once sending him a letter urging him to kill himself. And I want to hijack this consumerist bandwagon to look at some figures within the black revolutionary tradition. We're going to talk about the recuperation of their identities and struggles, and the way their characters get canonized in the American historical tradition. The point of this episode is to try to correct some narratives. History is written by the victors, and sometimes that means the parts they don't like get cut out. So, we're going to bring back some of the cut out parts and try to paint a fuller picture. Try to get a better idea of what went on and why those parts get cut out in the first place. And before we do, I've got to say that this video will definitely not give you the full picture. I've got like 20 minutes here, and these are whole-ass human beings, who were full of contradictions, who changed their mind, who gave hundreds of speeches, and who had to constantly adapt to changing circumstances. There is no single MLK or Nelson Mandela, but there is more to them than you probably already know. And one of the biggest parts of their stories that gets cut out is the deep influence of socialist thought on their philosophies and political goals. So let's talk about that. A good place to start with all this is MLK's politics. Martin Luther King Jr. is a great person to talk about because no other figure is more celebrated and one-dimensional in American history, second only maybe to decorated war hero and Purple Heart recipient Flat Stanley. Oh, wait, he's two-dimensional. Thank you, I'm here all week. Please clap. Because today, it's pretty difficult to find anybody who doesn't claim MLK's legacy as their own. Everyone loves to say how much they love MLK and how they 100% agree with him. And to show how much they love him, they'll happily take the monument of his life's work, his countless campaigns, protests, and efforts to redress the injustices of American life, and boil them down to just one speech. And really, to just one line of that one speech. And everybody loves that one line. In our ears that we must judge one another by the content of our character and not the color of our skin. Now he wanted people to be judged by the character and not by the color of their skin. On the color of my skin, but on the content of my character. We should judge our fellow citizens by the content of their character, not by the color of their skin. This obsession with the content of their character line and the I have a dream speech in general is no accident, by the way. It's been part of the tactical recuperation of MLK's legacy by the American state and its defenders for decades, an effort that is immortalized in the Reagan years. Why Reagan? Because Reagan is the guy who made MLK Day a national holiday. 
As such, you'll sometimes hear dweebs claim this six-foot-one flake of dandruff brought to life was actually proof of how the great American patriot can reconcile the country's racist history and become the biggest champion of racial justice. But that's wrong. Because for a guy like Reagan to become the MLK Day guy, a lot needed to change about how America viewed MLK. The Reverend could no longer be the radical extremist despised by over two-thirds of the country, the most hated man in America. He had to become an empty shell for any vague sentiment of justice. And most importantly, he had to be the colorblind guy. Because how did Reagan really feel about the civil rights movement? Let's take this quote from an article in The Nation. Reagan opposed every major piece of civil rights legislation adopted by Congress, including the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and the Fair Housing Act of 1968. As president, Reagan supported tax breaks for schools that discriminated on the basis of race, opposed the extension of the Voting Rights Act, vetoed the Civil Rights Restoration Act, and decimated the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. When you combine Reagan's political record with his symbolic stance on race issues, his deriding welfare recipients as welfare queens, his employing states' rights rhetoric in the same county where, in 1964, three of the most infamous murders of civil rights workers occurred, his initial opposition to establish a national holiday to commemorate Martin Luther King Jr., the Reagan legacy begins to lose much of its luster. And that's putting this outwardly racist guy's legacy extremely mildly. So then, why would Reagan suddenly flip on this issue, and why would the I Have a Dream line become the rallying call for every politician trying to score easy popularity points? Two academics explain it pretty clearly in this article. The focus on I Have a Dream in public discourse also made King ripe for appropriation because the emphasis on one speech and one issue served to obscure King's many other speeches and writings, as well as his less successful ventures, such as his effort to desegregate Chicago, his opposition to the Vietnam War, and the Poor People's Campaign. As early as 1964, for example, King praised the Indian government's preferential college admissions policy for untouchables, and argued that the United States must also find ways of atoning for the injustices she has inflicted upon her Negro citizens. The civil rights leader called for a broad-based and gigantic Bill of Rights for the disadvantaged, parallel with the GI Bill of Rights, for a guaranteed annual income, and for restitution in the form of radical changes in the structure of society that would provide African Americans with compensation in education, housing, employment, and healthcare. The public focus on I Have a Dream, with its simple poetic beauty, overshadowed the specific proposals that King had recommended in order to achieve his dream, again making it much easier for President Reagan to appropriate King for his own uses. And those uses were gutting the policies MLK advocated for in favor of the Reaganomic free market liberalism that funneled wealth from the poor to the wealthy. Which, given how wealth distribution looks in this country, also meant from many black people to very few white people. But the trick is that focusing exclusively on the I have a dream speech and misinterpreting it entirely allowed neoliberals to turn MLK into some weird conservative libertarian who wouldn't have wanted all this big government stuff that took into account people's race in its effort to redress the historical wrongs that made one group of colonized and enslaved people materially worse off than the people who colonized them. Dr. King would have hated redistribution, trust me. He loved and definitely wanted more of that sweet, sweet free market capitalism and the colonial and chattel slavery systems it was born out of. 
He doesn't want a race-conscious system of justice? That doesn't sound very colorblind, guys. Doesn't sound very content of our character. My best buddy MLK would definitely not approve. But of course he did. Don't be fooled. Actually listen to the guy for once. In the greed and exploitation which create the sector of poverty in the midst of wealth, again we have deluded ourselves into believing the myth that capitalism grew and prospered out of the Protestant ethic of hard work and sacrifice. The fact is that capitalism was built on the exploitation and suffering of black slaves. and continues to thrive on the exploitation of the poor, both black and white, both here and abroad. And we must also realize that the problems of racial injustice and economic injustice cannot be solved without a radical redistribution of political and economic power. We must further recognize that the ghetto is a domestic colony. Black people must develop programs that will aid in the transfer of power and wealth into the hands of residents of the ghetto so that they may in reality control their own destinies. And that's just two snippets out of many. Watch this video if you want a more complete picture. The point is, MLK readily admitted the incredible damage capitalism had produced in the United States, and explicitly advocated working through government measures, not the free market, to address the gulf between the poor and the rich, and the black and the white. Don't misinterpret me here, he didn't just advocate for government measures, but he certainly valued them tremendously. Anyway, the truth is that these are uncomfortable quotes for an American society that has never realized MLK's goals, but that has very much elevated MLK to the status of an untouchable god of justice. There's a dichotomy there that's too difficult to actually address. Too uncomfortable. He's great and perfect and a visionary, but also we didn't listen to him. How do you own up to something like that? Well, you don't. It's much easier to retell his story disingenuously obscuring the parts which contradict the fantasy of American exceptionalism and the steady march of progress towards a more perfect democracy than it is to actually challenge the poverty that capitalism and the exploitation of non-white others has wrought. Textbooks are probably the place this contradiction between MLK as a hero and American society not listening is most obvious. In an article titled The Limits of Master Narratives in History Textbooks, Professor of Education Derek P. Aldridge looks at exactly this phenomenon with MLK. He describes how American history textbooks, and the overarching narratives they shape and are shaped by, have killed the reality of MLK's life. By elevating him to the status of a messiah, framing him as the embodiment of the entire civil rights movement, and then trying to make him appear as if he was a moderate, the way American history has told MLK's struggle has served to sidestep questions too uncomfortable for it to ask. Questions of poverty, capitalism, and war. Questions that are not neatly answered with the end of Jim Crow laws. 
questions that still endure to this day and that bring together MLK and the people he is so often depicted as an adversary of, like Malcolm X or the Black Panther Party. Giving a proper place to these facets of MLK's politics and his proximity to the figures only remembered as radicals would raise too many questions about the legitimacy of the narrative American textbooks are so attached to. Constant, predictable, and certain progress. Because if textbooks started depicting MLK accurately as an anti-war, anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist, they would risk undermining the image of American democracy as the perfect representation of the will of the people and the true realization of justice. The truth is that King's dreams never came true for most of the issues he fought against. And even if they had, MLK was not the civil rights movement. He was just one face of it. And the civil rights movement was not a single issue movement. It had a long list of demands that still remain unheard. He is not the proof that American democracy works, and he was not an enemy to the radicals that shared his same ideas. But here in the US, we don't just settle on whitewashing our own guys. We'll whitewash your guys too, for free, because it makes us look good. Take Mandela. In textbooks, Nelson Mandela's identity is channeled through a few heroic archetypes. As a prisoner, whose release the world campaigned for. As a savior, whose long-awaited release from prison would solve the country's problems. As a peacemaker, who brings the country back from the brink of disaster. As a reconciler, who forgives those who wronged him. And finally, as a healer, who brings restoration to those who suffered under apartheid. Like MLK, these kinds of narratives of Mandela as a peaceful, heroic, triumphant against all odds leader and embodiment of the whole movement against apartheid are used to present a false narrative of the anti-apartheid movement and mythologize Mandela beyond recognition. Mandela, while important, did not end apartheid through sheer force of will nor on his own. And it wasn't the simple fact that he spent nearly three decades imprisoned that upended the rule of the Nationalist Party. For one, Mandela and the ANC, the revolutionary group turned political party that has governed South Africa since 1994, spent years engaged in violent revolution with the intention of overthrowing the South African government. In self-defense, after decades of brutal oppression, imprisonment, murder, and abject rule by an explicitly white supremacist state, the peaceful protest that had been met with state violence no longer sufficed for the ANC and other militant South African groups, prompting Mandela himself to advocate transforming their strategy to one of violent revolt centered around sabotage, guerrilla warfare, terror, and open revolution, forming the armed wing of the ANC. Mandela wasn't the peace-at-all-costs guy textbooks usually paint him as. He was an enemy of the state. Yeah, but then he left prison and he was fixed and he loved peace. Wrong again! The return to a nonviolent approach in the later years of the anti-apartheid struggle, while widely attributed to Mandela, actually came from other influences in the movement, notably Joe Slovo, the leader of the South African Communist Party. Because Mandela was the face of the ANC at that time, he was the guy who announced it. But he was not the guy who initiated it. This is not to look down on Mandela and tarnish his image, by the way. This is to show that ending apartheid wasn't as easy as just sitting in jail for a while. And while we're talking about tarnishing his image, while all this was happening, Mandela was, like MLK, one of those most hated men of the moment. Far from being championed by the international community, Mandela and the ANC's revolt earned them the label of terrorists. He was so a terrorist, actually, that it took until 2008 for the US to stop labeling him and the ANC as such. If that sounds bad, it gets worse. 
the US did much more than simply labeling anti-apartheid actors terrorists. Despite growing calls from the American public to end relations with the apartheid nationalist government, successive presidential administrations refused to meaningfully hear the calls of anti-apartheid militants and actively supported the continuation of apartheid through purposefully weak policies that would ensure US business and geopolitical interests in the region would be uninterrupted. Most of this support for the ruling apartheid party came from the fact that the ANC and the other groups they worked with were a mix of socialists and communists with broad support from socialist experiments elsewhere in the world. Entangling the US response to apartheid South Africa with its overall Cold War policies. Mandela, who openly advocated for nationalizing mines, banks, and monopoly industries after his release from prison, was far too close to the socialist line to receive direct US support. To give you an idea of how critical the US support for the nationalists was, it was only once the Cold War had ended that the US began meaningfully reversing its strategy and apartheid was lifted. Though only after decades of the US actively enabling apartheid to endure, and only bolstered as the ANC shifted towards a neoliberal program. The problem is that these changes in how we tell this story, and the fact that we place a whitewashed Mandela at the center of it, purposefully attempts to pacify the US's history and its persistent involvement with the suppression of movements for racial and economic justice. The focus on the 27 years Mandela spent in prison gives the impression that the anti-apartheid struggle was on pause, non-violent, and mostly happening on American college campuses. It diverts attention away from the long support of successive administrations for the nationalist government and their politics of racial segregation and white supremacist violence, and the efforts undertaken by a whole network of South African revolutionaries. The point is that by whitewashing MLK and Mandela, the whitewashing bleeds over and whitewashes the United States too. When the truth is that the US has been, and to this day still remains, a barrier to policies carried by people we applaud as heroes, but fail to actually listen to. At this point, the video is pretty much done, by the way. My original goal when writing this was going to be talking about many more radical figures, like Malcolm X, Angela Davis, Asada Shakur, and Fred Hampton, to name just a few. But MLK and Mandela ended up being such big topics that I didn't have the time to get to it. So, as a compromise, in the spirit of trying to correct narratives, and as a final treat for people who stay until the end, here's a few sentences on one of the movements that got the other side of the whitewashing coin. Demonization. Demonization plays just as important a role as whitewashing, and it only really works when you've also created a whitewashed foil to play against it. So people like Malcolm X and the Panthers get the other raw end of the deal. Here are some of the facts that get left out. The Black Panthers, targeted by the FBI's COINTELPRO and still remembered as domestic terrorists by much of the American public, led community projects to support and defend the black community. Free breakfast programs were instituted by the party to reduce food insecurity, particularly for young kids. Health clinics were opened to fight medical discrimination. And party members did patrols to monitor police officers when they stopped black people in order to prevent instances of police brutality. The Black Panthers explicitly and with intentionality continued the mission of MLK and the Poor People's Campaign, only to be remembered as the bad guys with guns who went too far. That is why the whitewashed image of MLK is so valuable to the ruling class. They can pay lip service to a black hero while positioning him against his very own ideas. As one final parting thought, consider this. If you think that the Black Lives Matter movement is violent or unreasonable or moving too fast, 
you would 100% be in that two-thirds of Americans who said the same exact things about MLK. Guaranteed. So please, if you're going to honor Dr. King, do it right. Honor his actual legacy, one of devotion to the poor, the downtrodden, those that this country and the world have cast aside in favor of the almighty dollar. Martin Luther King Jr. was anti-war, anti-racist, and anti-capitalist. If your own worldview doesn't reflect those ideals, and you use Dr. King as a rhetorical weapon, you're being dishonest. But it's never too late to change your perspective. I mentioned at the beginning of this video that this kind of content is made possible by my patrons on Patreon. As you can probably imagine, when I made the switch to producing political content, I started getting demonetized way more often, and most of my sponsors bailed. It's understandable, but because of this, I'm having to rely more heavily on viewers like you. If you like the kind of videos I'm producing, and you're able to chip in even a dollar a month, I would greatly appreciate the support. As a little show of that appreciation, every patron, regardless of donation amount, gets early access to every video, plus access to our patrons-only Discord server. We recently dropped a major update to the Discord, and there are some really cool new features. We have everything from a recommended reading list, to a book club, to special channels for our neurodivergent and LGBT comrades. We also have fun medal rolls for people who complete the server challenges. We've built a great little community, and we'd love for you to be a part of it. So if you'd like to help support my channel, join the Discord, and get early access to every video, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com secondthought. If you enjoyed this video, consider dropping a like. If you hated it, a thumbs down. You can check out my previous videos by clicking the links on your screen. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you next week. All for you, yeah, yo. There whenever it matters, and even more when you feel like it doesn't. Protect you so you never feel like you wasn't. Know I'm right alongside you. Hear that I hum behind you, but always got you. End of discussion, nothing means more. First one to offer his shoulders for what you preach for. Thought I saw the eyes of the world until I seen yours. And know that I ain't see a better view yet. I'm with whatever, so don't ever you fret. Know that you covered, not a hurdle or a heartbreak to change what a partake. Cause none of them won't ever get comfortable in your walkway. My job is to aware you, fully loaded. Prepare you for all of the above that I'm never letting get near you. But still, in all, give you every advantage I found. Couldn't find a better fit for them along with my crown. And since the baton was passed, I've been down. Cause failing's not an option, and dad is not a noun, not at all. My message to any dad, man, first off, know that yeah, it, it is a hard job, but it's the greatest job in the world. I wouldn't trade it for anything, I wouldn't change anything about it. Everything you're doing from here on out. If it didn't have purpose before, now it has purpose. It's the most important thing you'll ever do. Just be a dad.